0: So, Miles, I was thinking, and it occurred to me, I don't think that X-Men really have any punch-clock villains.
1: What, like DC's Clock
0: King? No, no, I mean, like, dangerous but easily beatable guys you take out at the beginning of the issue to establish your hero's bona fides.
1: I think the Danger Room does most of the heavy lifting there.
0: That's eh, it's still too bad. I've always had a soft spot for those slightly silly dudes, you know, the Wrecking Crew, Stiltman, Hydro-Man...
1: I really don't get why Hydro-Man isn't a major threat. He controls water. Water is everywhere. It's like
0: 60-plus percent of most people's bodies. While everything you say is true, the problem is Hydro-Man has one incredibly exploitable weakness.
1: Electricity? Low
0: temperatures. Laundry detergent. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin.
1: And I'm Miles Stokes.
0: And we are here to explain the X-Men.
1: Because it's about time someone did.
0: Welcome to episode 411 of Jay and Miles explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera, or as they say, give you the 411.
1: Indeed. Do you remember when you could dial 411 for information? Can you still do that? Does anybody dial those numbers anymore, or is everything online?
0: I'm pretty sure you still can in a lot of municipalities.
1: Okay, okay. I would do that, but phone calls are terrifying. It's 2023. Who uses the phone anymore?
0: Yeah. senior citizens.
1: Oh, yeah, probably them. Come to think of it, I mostly talk to my parents and a couple very specific friends on the phone, so,
0: yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure my parents don't have a landline anymore. Oh, okay.
1: Striding boldly into the present day. I approve.
0: But I do still—well, th- no, I don't—I don't actually talk to them on the phone. I was gonna say, no, we—we we use Zoom.
1: Oh, well, well, there you go. That is very much 2023. But, you know what isn't 2023 is the late 90s. Where we are and where we will be for kind of a long time on this show.
0: The fashion's kind of coming back, though.
1: I guess that's true, yeah. I gotta say, this whole long hair and flannel shirt thing, I mean, it doesn't always work, but every every time the
0: fashion cycles back
1: around, I'm cool for like four seconds.
0: I keep on walking past teenagers in outfits that I wore in high school, and it's very unsettling. Oh,
1: huh. Weird. The Wheel of Time turns and ages come and go. Alternately, time is like a river and history repeats. Anyway, uh, the Wheel of Time today is turning to some X-Men Unlimited. But not necessarily all of it.
0: I mean, it is, after all, Unlimited, and we've only got so much time.
1: No, that's a fair point. I mean, I don't think we have a plan to end for the show, but still. But we will be skipping X-Men Unlimited number 16 for now. That was a Generation X-based Operation Zero Tolerance tie-in... We didn't cover it during OZT, and it isn't really significant at all right now. It will eventually be thematically significant, so we'll maybe get to it later. Basically, it's about the school admitting, theoretically, its first human student.
0: But these issues are more interesting anyway.
1: These issues are actually really fun, number 17 and 18 that we'll be covering. But it's kind of weird, and I I know we've talked about it before, but I feel like it's maybe worth revisiting like, what's the difference between X-Men Unlimited number 18, a Gambit-focused story that ties into X-Men stories, versus an X-Men annual?
0: Well, um, it
1: costs less. True. I mean, X-Men Unlimited cost more than a standard issue, but I
0: think less than an annual? I I think so. I I don't think it had foil variants, either.
1: Uh, true. I mean, that kind of varied, uh, as it were. Wow. Wah, wah
0: So, X-Men Unlimited... Is, is technically sort of standalone short stories. While a lot of them tie into greater X-Men continuity, as the Gambit, one that we're going to be covering, does, technically it's an anthology series that exists in its, its own kind of discrete bubble.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it also is free, as much as the issue we mentioned, the Gambit 1 number 18 doesn't do this, it's very free to focus on stuff that wouldn't neatly fit with a specific book. That's something I like about it. You know, if you pick up, like, a Cable annual, you're going to assume that Cable is going to be in it, or at least some of his core cast. With X-Men Limited, it can be anything. So that means if you're not following all the core X-Books, or all the solo series, you might be exposed to characters or concepts you didn't know as much about. And I assume Marvel was hoping you would then pick up those books.
0: Also, like some, but definitely not all annuals, especially during this era, it it's a space for one of my favorite forms, which is the short story.
1: Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And, you know, X-Men Unlimited is all over the place quality-wise. It started very strong. It's had its ups and downs. I really like both issues that we're covering today. Some yeah. of them later will be... Utterly pointless. But, uh, yeah, I'm very excited to talk about these two. These two strange and yet kind of great
0: stories. We're going to start with X-Men Unlimited number 17, Alone in His Head. This is written by Terry Cavanaugh, penciled by Tom Lyle, inked by Rich Parada, Sean Parsons, and Walden Wong, colored by Ariane Lynchwick, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Colia Fuse. And I know I keep saying that I'm tired of Sabretooth, but actually this story is fun as hell. I really like it.
1: Oh, yeah. It's goofy and also kind of makes some really interesting points about the characters and about, like, human psychology.
0: Before we get into the actual story, though, I want to draw your attention to the cover subtitle. Often there's a subtitle on the cover that's different from the actual subtitle of the story, Um, and this time it is Face Off. And this got me spinning in a horrible, horrible direction, which... Led to the question, if you had to cast Nicolas Cage and John Travolta as Wolverine and Sabretooth, which would be which, and why?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, Nicolas Cage, I think, would have a ton of fun with Sabretooth, so I would probably go in that direction. But then again, John Travolta could as well. I, You know, I don't think you could go wrong. And especially because they're each going to be playing each other if they're in face-off, like this comic subtitled Face Off that has essentially the same plot as the movie. Uh you kind of can't lose.
0: I have trouble seeing Travolta as Sabretooth. Like I think I think Cage could carry that that role in a way that I don't know if Travolta could, but then again, I guess you know, c- considering his performance in Face Off, maybe.
1: Hard to say. I would say the world will never know, but in my heart of hearts, I hope the world will someday know.
0: Maybe it would be like that that version of of Frankenstein where the two lead actors, the actors playing the Doctor and the Monster, switched roles every night. Oh, that's kind of
1: brilliant. I hadn't heard of
0: that. Yeah, yeah, it was the whole thing.
1: Huh. Now I'm just imagining Nicolas Cage and John Travolta and Wolverine and Sabretooth and Dr. Frankenstein and the Creature uh, all just going to a a party together and having fun conversations.
0: I mean, we know that they've done a Frankenstein riff with Sabretooth. I can't remember whether they have with Wolverine. I'm not sure.
1: But boy, we are tangenting already, as much as I'm enjoying it.
0: Alright, Um. so we start with Wolverine, and Wolverine with shaggier-than-usual hair, and that's, that's an important detail, busting into the office of Warren Kenneth Worthington III. And Logan is pissed off, because apparently a Worthington Industries factory in North Carolina has a secret lab that is trying to reverse engineer Forge's neutralizer. That is a callback.
1: That is, yeah. Uh, when Forge first showed up or close to it, he made this neutralizer gun for the US government to depower Rogue. Ended up depowering Storm and then Forge and Storm got together and it was a whole thing. But this was like a great big no-no and, uh, Forge, it took Forge a long time to live this down. That was way back in Uncanny X-Men number 185 from 1984 when the neutralizer depowered Storm.
0: Now, Logan and Warren have never particularly gotten along, and in fact, in the classic X-Men backup story to Giant Size X-Men number one, we had them clashing directly. Although, Wolverine did also show up on, on Warren's windowsill recently to give him a relationship pep talk, so I'm not quite sure where that balances out.
1: I mean, I think the important part is that they have not gotten along at all at various points in their past. Like, we saw that in The Extinction Agenda. We saw that in Inferno. We saw that all over the place. And so the fact that there's so much friction between them here, even though it will turn out to be a sign of the big twist or a big twist in this story, we buy it. Like, it makes sense that these characters, especially if one of them thought the other was responsible for something unconscionable, would be really pissed off at each other.
0: Friction is one word for it, but, uh, Warren is somewhat conflict-avoidant, and in fact, he attempts to end the conversation by jumping out of the fucking window. Can you imagine working with this man?
1: Oh god, no, I don't want to do that. Uh, here's the thing. Angel presses a button in his office that very gently, like, accordion folds open the big plate glass windows so that he can fly out, but he still has his wings just rip out of his dress shirt.
0: Come on, dude! Miles, Warren's vendetta against shirts goes way back and is firmly established in continuity.
1: You know, that is a good point. His top nemesis is Apocalypse, and his close second nemesis is shirts.
0: Wolverine, for his part, jumps after and grabs onto Warren, and I had a moment of oh my god, that's the worst idea ever before I remembered that Wolverine no longer has an adamantium skeleton, and so now only weighs as much as a normal five-foot-two-inch, very dense person. I guess they resolve their differences, because the next thing we see, they are flying on a plane, not not with Warren's wings, um, to North Carolina to check out the factory in person. And this is where we come to the twist. Now, there are two ways to tell the story that Kavanaugh and company are going to be telling here. Now, one way is a mystery, and if you tell a story as a mystery, then you save the detail I'm about to spoil for a late second act twist. The other is what the story actually does, and that's to tell it as a suspense story, and in that version, you reveal the twist on page seven.
1: Right, that way the reader knows what's up, but in this case, Angel absolutely does not.
0: And what is up is that the real Logan, established as such in captions, so we know the real deal is alone and very fucked up, bleeding from major wounds on a train in Sabretooth's body.
1: Which means that the Logan who's with Angel...
0: Is actually Sabretooth.
1: Yup. And it's very clear what's going on here. Like, the story does does not dance around it. But one thing I thought was interesting is that the narration and the art at this big reveal of, you know, the deal that Logan's mind is in Sabretooth's extremely injured body, they're kind of at odds. So the narration, for instance, tells us,
0: But this savage predator's frame and form now lies gutted, his throat slashed from ear to ear.
1: But the art just shows Sabertooth's body, well, first Logan's body, and then in reality Sabretooth's body, in fetal position with the ripped-up costume. Like, I'm against gratuitous gore, but I feel like showing the the gravity of the level of injuries that has immobilized this dude would actually be really effective here. Well,
0: the costume injuries.
1: Oh, just pure costume injuries, like the costume was gutted, the costume's throat was slashed from costume ear to costume ear. He
0: got him right in the costume.
1: Oh, God, right in the costume.
0: I assume this is a coloring error.
1: Maybe, but, like, I didn't even see any blood drawn with with inked outlines.
0: Yeah, and we know he's dripping blood. Like, we see evidence of this later. So, something's wrong here. Something's off.
1: Yeah. Uh, I love this issue. That just struck me as a kind of weird glaring error, and I'm not often one to ask for more gore.
0: Yeah, no, it's a significant glitch. And, I mean, we're not asking for, like, viscera here.
1: No, just some blood just regular old wholesome white bread american picket fence blood
0: so anyway uh this brings us to the question of how this body swap happened in an issue not written by chris claremont and the two plot lines the flashback and the the current stuff are interspersed from here in the in the issue but we're going to cover the flashback in one swell foop so wolverine was out skiing and It's very important to me here to note that he was out skiing in a perfectly matched purple outfit, including a beret.
1: And sunglasses, and like pointy cornered sunglasses, and and the outfit is two-tone, like dark purple and light purple. It's amazing. He is so very coordinated, and I appreciate that.
0: He's extremely mod, and it is the last thing I would expect Wolverine to wear when skiing.
1: Maybe he's very grape-flavored right now.
0: Maybe it's, like, Superman and different things happen when he gets hit with different colors of kryptonite, only something-something purple ski suit?
1: Uh, it just means he really enjoys extreme sports when he's purple. Like, when he goes to hang out with Adam X, they uh, they both wear purple, and then they, you know, ski out of helicopters.
0: Later he's gonna be in the same outfit, but green, which represents something else we'll decide on when we get to it. Mm Mm-hmm. So... Wolverine was, was out skiing and being purple. Um, he was lured off the t- trail by a woman's screams and discovered the woman being menaced by Sabretooth. They fought. Wolverine won, but it turned out the woman was in cahoots with Sabretooth. So her name is Who, H-O-O, and she is never going to show up again, as far as I know, or at least has not yet. Um, Who is a telepath of sorts. Uh, her mutant power is body-swapping two people by touching them at the same time.
1: And this is interesting because we saw those powers before in the fill-in X-Force number 62. That was the one where Shinobi Shaw um, had his trans mutant henchperson mind meld uh, switch a bunch of characters from body to body. The difference with Mrs. Who is that she mentions losing more and more of her identity every time she does this, which is kind of an interesting thematic take on the whole deal.
0: It is. And the dialogue implies this was the other continuity issue that I found. The dialogue implies that she tried this earlier with Sabretooth and Angel, but they were incompatible because Sabretooth was too too feral and animalistic. Um But that seems really, really unlikely.
1: No, no, no. I mean, we know that Warren Worthington is like a charismatic rich guy. I'm sure he does a lot of glad handing at various events and shaking people's hands and stuff. So maybe Sabretooth just wore the universally perfect trench coat and fedora outfit, hung out with Mrs. Who, who Warren's never met before, and they were all just like clapping each other's shoulders and shaking hands.
0: I 100% do not buy Warren not spotting Sabretooth.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. He also really hates Sabretooth. Like, top nemesis, Apocalypse, second place, Shirts, third place, Sabretooth.
0: Fourth place, spinning blades and lasers.
1: Yes, yes, exactly that.
0: Sorry, aerial obstacles in general.
1: hmm gotta swoop around those. Never stop swooping.
0: And Sabretooth... Earns the enmity, because he is scary and he's also very smart. Before the swap is over, he rips open his own torso and slits his own throat so that Wolverine will wake up in a very, very damaged body. Which brings us roughly to the current status quo as Warren and Wolverine—but not, not Wolverine, Sabertooth and Wolverine's body. Let's call him Saberine.
1: Okay, so with Saberine, the first part of the name is the actual mind, the actual identity—
0: Right, so that gives us Saberine, who is Sabertooth and Wolverine's body, and Wolvertooth, who is Wolverine and Sabretooth's body.
1: Yeah, seems clear.
0: So, Warren prevents Sabreen from doing gratuitous killing on the way in, um, but still just totally believes this is Logan, because Warren Kenneth Worthington is not the most perceptive crayon in the box.
1: He also has a very low opinion of Logan, I guess. I like this, though. I like that um, we see Saberine with these verbal tells. He keeps calling women frails, which, as we know, Sabretooth, ever the misogynist, always does. He also keeps calling everyone Bubba instead of Bub. It's like, we have Bub at home
0: and they, they find a secret lab specifically Sabrine finds it by the fact that there is no smell down the hallway which means something's being, being hidden um, and it's guarded by fancy henchperson types who immediately try to kill them and uh, Warren responds by doing what he does best
1: he rips through another shirt I, I feel like shirt manufacturers around all of Warren's offices must do really well like locksmiths or electricians in Silent Hill
0: Oh, I assume he has, like, a bespoke tailor on payroll.
1: And I would say that Taylor would be frustrated every time this happens, but no, that's job security.
0: Exactly. Or maybe he makes tearaway shirts. Maybe he, like, deliberately uses cheaper, flimsier material for Warren's shirts, knowing that Warren wants to be able to just freely bust out of them. Because the thing is, I don't know if you've ever tried to, like, tear a garment using pressure the way wings busting out of it would. It's really hard and they'll normally bust apart at the seams, but if you look at the way it's drawn in comics, really if you look at the way garments tear in comics in general, it's the fabric itself that rips and and shreds almost every time, which means it's flimsy as hell.
1: Okay, well maybe this is part of why Warren hates shirts so much, because he's spent so much time wearing crappy shirts because he rips out of them, that he's come to hate them even more because they're very uncomfortable.
0: I mean, they're not necessarily uncomfortable. Like, they could be very, very soft because they have very, very fine threads, just, you know... Not very good, and I should, I should qualify right now in case, in case the sounds are breaking through. That um, my my four month old is in the next room and has recently discovered that they can shriek like a pterodactyl to their immense, immense entertainment. So um, yeah, hey everybody.
1: I just figured that was Sauron.
0: Nope, nope, that's a baby.
1: Excellent, well done, baby. So after Warren rips through his possibly comfortable shirt. There is a genuinely great panel of him knocking all the soldiers across the room with his giant, like, muscular kind of wings. He looks really powerful, which he should. Like, Warren doesn't need metal wings to be physically impressive. He never did as much as I love Archangel. It's been mentioned multiple times that his wings are very, very strong.
0: Oh, yeah, and that's... That's entirely, I'm kind of, plausible isn't quite the word I'm going for here, but I'm thinking, like, swans can absolutely beat you up with just their wings.
1: Swans are assholes. Warren's way nicer.
0: Yeah, but he also has significantly wider wingspan and so must have significantly more powerful wing musculature.
1: Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just nice to see. Especially in this era where he's just lost his metal wings, and I think a lot of people see him as, I don't know, less cool as a superhero because of that. He's just differently cool.
0: I mean, he's still got specific vulnerabilities, but he can also beat you to death using his wings,
1: like a swan.
0: And Warren once again prevents Sabrine from killing anyone. But now that he's in Sabrine, doesn't need Warren anymore, and tries to kill him. And they lock eyes and kiss. Um, no, no, no. They lock eyes, and Warren realizes that Sabrine is not, in fact, Logan. And at this point, a third party enters the scene. And this is Wolverine in Sabretooth's body. And again, we're going to call this one Wolvertooth.
1: And Wolvertooth has disguised himself to get in in a soldier's uniform. And he just rips out of it. It just flies into shreds around him, revealing the Sabretooth outfit underneath. These people
0: are like the sartorial equivalent of Paige fucking Guthrie. All pants in the 616 are tearaway pants.
1: All of them. I knew they weren't real cops. Look how hot they were.
0: So he's fought his way in, but he hasn't killed anyone, and he has left a trail of blood. So we know he's still bleeding from the wounds that Sabretooth inflicted before leaving the body, which makes the costume cuts early on that much sillier. And, of course, he and Saberine fight, and Saberine is extremely unimpressed with the body he's inhabiting, namely Logan's body without adamantium.
1: But Sabretooth in Logan's body is excited to do crimes using said body.
0: Whoever's wearing it when this is over will be caught dead center of the worst scourge to hit mutants since. since the massacre itself. Good as guilty, a body on the run.
1: And Wolvertooth is about to go after Saberine, but Angel flies off first with a large, silly gun. And remember, Angel with the gun is not new. He had a bazooka on the cover of Uncanny X Men number one. Or maybe it was a big pipe, or maybe it was a telescope, I don't know.
0: We don't know, because he didn't actually have it inside the comic. No, no, just on the cover. Anyway. They all arrive roughly simultaneously in the secret lab, where there is a large space dildo that they all somehow recognize as the prototype of a thing that they last saw in the form of a handheld gun. The power neutralizer.
1: Angel mentions that he could actually see some practical uses for it, like Mara would probably want to depower herself. But he blows it
0: up anyway. And... Wolvertooth takes down Saberine, who is shocked at his relative ruthlessness.
1: You underestimated me, Creed. My will to live, to find you, to follow on your trail, crawling on my stomach till I could rise to my knees, crawling on my knees till I could stumble to my feet. And at this point, Wolvertooth cuts off the civilian clothes worn by Saberine to reveal the Wolverine outfit, underneath so at this point all of our main characters have either ripped off their costumes or had their costumes ripped off Jay what would you wear underneath every outfit to be revealed when you either flexed through the outer layer or it was damaged in battle
0: my skin?
1: I think I would wear one of those striped bathing costumes from like old timey beach pictures
0: oh that's much better although I feel like there's there's a strong case for boxers with little hearts on them
1: I feel like those are your two options, yeah. Like, I would say you could just wear the barrel with suspenders, but that would be kind of hard to conceal, you know, under your, your fancy rich person suit.
0: To dress over, yeah. It could be some kind of, like, pop-up barrel.
1: Oh, okay. Like, you just sort of pull the tab near your shoulder, like, with a life vest on an airplane?
0: Well, or it's something that's, you know, set to inflate and, and take shape when your clothing comes tears off. Okay, that
1: that is thinking ahead is what that is if you live in the Marvel Universe.
0: Well, you gotta think ahead. All the pants are tear away. Well. Now, Saberine is a little confused. He wants to know how Wolvertooth got in, because it should have been impossible. Sabertooth was looking for a way in for weeks, and Wolvertooth responds,
1: My guess is that you were trying to find a way in and back out again, Vic, with the prize and your skin intact. Same reason you left me alive in that mountain cave in the Rockies, right? So you could have your body back in one piece once you were finished with mine? Difference is, sucker, I don't really care anymore! So tell me who's crazier now!
0: I really like the Wolverine we get in Sabretooth's body. Like, I think it's a really interesting take on the character, and I think it's a really interesting and plausible take on the way he'd respond to what's happening to him. I'm going to talk about this more when we get to the end of the issue, but in a lot of ways, for Wolverine, this is a story about recurring trauma and bodily autonomy. And I think that dialogue plays it extremely, extremely well.
1: I agree, yeah. And we as readers, of course, know all of the trauma that Sabretooth has inflicted in terms of body, in terms of identity on Logan, with or without the help of Weapon X in the latter case. But you don't really need to know... The details, like, it comes through, I think, in the subtleties.
0: Well, and what Wolverine does and doesn't remember. The fact that, effectively, atrocities have been committed with his body without his consent in the past.
1: That's a really good point. And yeah, that's kind of what's happening right here, except he's got a front row seat, which kind of makes it worse.
0: So, not for long, because... Warren jumps in to separate them, reassuring Wolverine that he's not a killer, and somehow his touch reverses the brain swap, which is goofy, but that's fine.
1: It's like uh, when you're walking on carpet, and then you go to shake somebody's hand, or otherwise touch them, and you zap them with static electricity, except worse.
0: Well, specifically what it's like is the episode of Gravity Falls, where there's a carpet where when you do that, you swap minds with the person. Oh
1: yeah! Oh, that was such a good show.
0: It's It's got one of my very, very favorite moments in the entire series, which I, I definitely texted to my wife, like, way more times than was called for around the time I was starting HRT. I'll stick it in the visual companion.
1: Nice. So that's the main story. We also get a couple of epilogues, though. In the first, Mrs. Who goes back to her boss. It's Sebastian Shaw, because of course it is. Is there nefarious stuff regarding business going on? It's probably Sebastian Shaw. He commissioned this whole thing, and interestingly, it's not commented upon, but Mrs. Who is drawn here with a blank face, like just this featureless uh, expanse of face with no eyes or mouth or whatever. She mentioned earlier that she loses more of her identity the more she uses her powers to swap other people, and apparently that is literally physical, which again, creepy and fascinating.
0: Uh, We also learn here in passing that Sabretooth got away. Yeah, you
1: know, that's kind of what he does. He betrays people, and he gets away.
0: In Epilogue II, Wolverine and Angel are in a ski lift, and Wolverine is wearing the same outfit that he was skiing before, only instead of purple, it's now green, complete with the beret.
1: I mean, I get it. I have a few different colors of the same plaid flannel shirts. I I really like them. They're really comfortable.
0: So what do you think is the symbolism of going from purple to green in context of this? Does the green represent, you know, regret, maturation?
1: Uh, green apple.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. Uh, green apple, like, Jolly Rancher or actual green apples?
1: It's kind of a deeper green here, so I'm going to say actual green apples. That Those Jolly Ranchers are just so very neon, and Wolverine is many things, but neon is not one of them.
0: Really? Because I would have clocked it as more of like a pucker
1: green. Oh man, do you remember that time when we were trying to come up with the worst cocktails ever, and we came up with hot buttered pucker?
0: Uh, we were not trying to come up with the worst cocktails ever. Specifically, one of our housemates had purchased a container of hot-buttered rum mix, which stated in large letters on it that you could add it to rum, ellipsis, or your favorite alcoholic beverage. And we were theorizing just how badly this could go if someone's favorite alcoholic beverage were, say, vodka or watermelon pucker.
1: You know, I never actually tried the hot-buttered pucker. I feel like I need to before
0: I die. Possibly immediately
1: before I die.
0: Well, hot-buttered green apple pucker would probably actually be pretty good.
1: You know, that's a really good point, yeah. Okay, watermelon it is.
0: Anyway, uh, Wolverine in green on a ski lift with Angel, um, and he's wondering if the blood he sees on his hands is residue from having Sabretooth in his brain or if the shock of displacement startled memories of his own back to the surface.
1: And there's that connection that you were alluding to before. Yeah. It's very effectively handled. Like, I wouldn't call it subtle, but as we've mentioned many times before, these are superhero comics. They can be subtle, but they don't have to be to be effective.
0: Thing is, if you don't actually know much about Wolverine's backstory, this isn't a subtle story. This is, it's it's a brain swap story, and it's fun, and it's cool, and there's some hints at darker stuff there. If you know about Wolverine's backstory... It's a really interesting multi-layered story, again, about bodily autonomy and war trauma.
1: Yeah. So, well done, Terry Kavanaugh. Which is not something I always say, but this is a
0: good one. So, that's Wolverine and Sabretooth. Next up, it's Gambit Time. Sorry, I'm sorry. Next up, it Gambit Time.
1: It Gambit Time, indeed. But... This is an issue of X Men Unlimited that actually has two stories in it. Again, kind of like annuals often do. And because the Gambit story is really great, I kind of want to end on that. So let's cover the second story first. This is a Marrow story. It's called Guiding Light, and it's written by Bill Roseman, penciled by Marty Egeland, inked by Howard M. Schum, colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And this kind of takes us back in time. We mentioned we skipped an Operation Zero Tolerance story. Well, we're also covering this one. This is right before Marrow left the sewers to find the X-Men, as it turned out Iceman, back in OCT. This is from when she was taking care of the injured Callisto. And in this case, Marty Eglin continues the bizarre artistic plot point of the best way to treat a chest wound being to strip Callisto down and lightly cover her breasts with leaves. Like, they're not even packed on! They're just on her breast! It's like autumn happened, but only directly over the parts of her that would make the comic violate the comics code. Uh,
0: Also, instead of pants, she's now wearing tiny pink armored panties, which is not really a very Callisto fashion choice.
1: No, it's very strange, but, you know, whatever. Apparently, we've seen this from enough artists that, with with the sewer wizard of the Morlocks, the healer gone, the only thing anybody knows how to do now is to cover breasts with autumn leaves.
0: Well, no, the healer has done this. It's established that, that they're waiting for the, end of the, heal- the herbs with which the healer treated her to take effect.
1: Okay, now, I specifically remember that time that Xavier was beaten almost to death, and the main method of the healer's treatment was to dress Xavier in bondage gear—
0: So this is sort of consistent?
1: Sort of, sort of. Apparently there's this real sartorial, somewhat kinky method of healing if you're in the sewers.
0: Alternately, the healer is just a really pervy wizard and insists that this is part of the healing process, and it's absolutely not.
1: Oh, man, so in fact, the way Marrow is treating Callisto, they're both positive this is the proper way to treat, like, a big laser blast wound, and in fact, it's accomplishing absolutely nothing. It's just an autumnal tit placebo. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we established that. Anyway, as all of this healing or whatever occurs, there are noises from a nearby construction crew that's been gradually approaching our hero's lair. Uh, Callisto is a pacifist at this point, and she asks Marrow to promise not to hurt these random innocent people doing their job. Marrow responds
0: Promises don't work in the tunnels, Cal. Down here, things go bump in the night.
1: And she is silhouetted, except for her glowing yellow eyes, and she's holding up this big jagged bone knife in front of her face. It is legit intimidating. Marrow should always be scary, and I really appreciate the way she's uh, she's drawn here by Marty Eglund.
0: Marrow should always be scary, but but Marrow should also always be scary with a purpose, which she is here as well,
1: yes, very much. So as for the humans who Marrow has not promised not to kill. Uh, the crew leader and his mustache scout the tunnels, and he's complaining about how all the kids working for him don't know about real responsibility, that he can't help but be responsible thanks to his three-year-old daughter and his summer place in Wildwood. Like, it's a good thing he doesn't get a name yet on top of this backstory, or else he would be done for.
0: Yeah, I definitely read him as doomed. I was mistaken, but...
1: I mean, Marrow does grab him from behind and threaten his life if he doesn't have his crew leave. And he doesn't want to lose his job, but she tells him, with her face suddenly kind of soft, that he should know what life is worth. That she got to learn what life was worth back in the mutant massacre.
0: And and we, we see, you know, in a flashback, a young Sarah cowering terrified in the midst of the slaughter.
1: Side note, we of course see the image of the Marauders slaughtering the Morlocks here in this flashback. And it's kind of weird these days to see Grey Crow, who at the time was called Scalpunter before Marvel understandably changed his name, it's kind of weird to see him just being such a merciless murderer of the innocent when he became one of the more sympathetic characters later on in the recent Hellions series.
0: Yeah, well, these these Marauders were retconned to have been clones, weren't they?
1: Uh, True, although I think the later ones were also different clones. I think the only one that ever had a real one that we knew of was Sabretooth. I don't know, retcons abound. But anyway, point being, Marrow is kind of telling her story here. And part of this, of course, is for the audience. She mentions specifically that even an angel was ruined down here. One of her character traits is that she's kind of fixated upon seeing Angel when she was a little girl as this vision of beauty down in the tunnels amidst all of this horror.
0: Well, of beauty destroyed.
1: Exactly, yeah. I'm actually really looking forward to seeing how her and Warren interact in the era that we're jumping into.
0: Ooh, yeah, likewise.
1: And I love Mero's line here.
0: Heaven came here to die. What makes you think you'll do any better?
1: And there is a giant blood print, a bloody silhouette of Angel with his wings crucified on the wall behind them. And these little shatter points where the harpoons that crucified him were. This shows up in multiple panels. Like, at first I thought it was a metaphor, but no. There is literally a big Warren-sized blood print that apparently has been stuck on this wall for, like, fucking years and years.
0: Well, or it's something they paint over as a memorial. I mean, I guess, but it looks all
1: spattery and shit. They must be very precise about their gruesomeness.
0: The Morlocks are kind of weird, Miles.
1: The Morlocks are kind of weird. I don't know, like, as dark as this is, though, every time I looked at it, I just had to stifle a a mild guffaw. Like, it's just so, so much blood.
0: This, This again supports my theory that it's at least partly paint.
1: That could be. Oh, or maybe this is where the blood that I was hoping to see in the last story got off to.
0: Yeah, I can't accept that, actually, but you do you.
1: No, it just packed all its stuff up in a bindle and went to seek its fortune down in the sewers.
0: Okay, you know you know that, that blood and people work differently, right?
1: I mean, this is the Marvel Universe, dude.
0: Right, right, everyone's got the same tearaway pants.
1: Mm-hmm, and some people eat genetic marrow. Anyway, marrow says that down here, this is sacred ground. Does he understand what that means? And he says, oh, like church, or like his kid's room— And she grabs his name tag, seeing his name, which it's a good thing it wasn't revealed earlier, or like we said, he would have been done for, and says that if he doesn't leave this holy ground alone...
0: I know your name. Don't make me come knocking on your door. It might wake your kids.
1: It's like she can't be empathetic for more than a few seconds before going right back into threat mode, which makes sense. She refuses to be vulnerable. The main thing she's comfortable doing is being angry and scary.
0: Well, or she's cleverly figured out that effective threats are a pretty good means of avoiding physical violence if you need to.
1: That's a good point also. And in fact, it works. The crew leader tells his crew that he found some structural problems they're pulling out. And Callisto is kind of surprised that Maro didn't kill everybody. Mero's explanation. Men sure are
0: suckers for a pretty face.
1: You talk tough, Sarah. But sometimes I think you're still a scared little girl. And Mara, with Angel's blood silhouette in the background of her word balloon, replies,
0: Whatever gets you through the night.
1: So that was fun. But I really like this one. I really like the A-plot.
0: Now, I want to segue to the A-plot by discussing the common thematic thread that the A-plot and the B-plot have, why they're paired together as a story. And that thread is the mutant massacre.
1: Very much so, Yeah. Because this is a Gambit story, and of course the last time we saw Gambit was when he was abandoned in the Antarctic wastes by the X-Men after they found out that he was indirectly responsible for the mutant massacre because he recruited the marauders who perpetrated said massacre for Mr. Sinister.
0: And led them to the Morlock Tunnels, I believe.
1: Uh, Depending on which version of continuity we're looking at, yeah. That was the big dark secret that Gambit had been hiding and that had been alluded to for dozens of issues before this point.
0: That is a fairly big and fairly dark secret. It is, yeah.
1: As much as the comic also seems to be walking it back as much as it could at the same time, always making it very clear that Gambit didn't really know the consequences of what he was doing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the degree of his culpability really varies from story to story, and I mean, I think it's fairly clear that the writers realized that for Gambit to have this big, dark secret and still stay a sympathetic protagonist, they were going to have to walk a very, very fine line, which they I think they did more or less successfully at this point.
1: Agreed. And that takes us to X-Men Unlimited number 18, Once an X-Man. Written by Tom DeFalco, penciled by Marcelo Frusin, inked by Jose Marson Jr., colored by Shannon Blanchard, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Emerson Miranda. So I have a question hmm
0: There's a twist in this story. Um, was it really clear to you from the start, or was that just me?
1: Uh, it was also—it was clear to me as well. But like you mentioned in your coverage of the Wolverine and Sabretooth story, that's fine. Sometimes it's deliberate that the audience kind of knows what's up, even if the character doesn't. Sometimes that works, and here it totally works. Because— we open with Gambit standing at the Xavier Institute's gate, sadly watching a few of the X-Men happily having a snowball fight, even though he knows this is a dream. But more importantly, he is being harangued by a voice we haven't heard in a long time. This, I guess it's not the angry Claremontian narrator, uh, yelling in second person at the main character. It's the angry DeFalcoian narrator.
0: No, it's DeFalco writing the angry Claremontian narrator. The angry narrator is a Claremontian conceit. And this angry narrator has a very Claremontian voice. It's the angry Claremontian narrator as written by Tom DeFalco.
1: And as spoken by Jay Edidin, because so much of why I was excited to cover this issue is the fact that you get to do
0: this. You really messed up, Gambit. That's what you do, isn't it? True happiness rests within your grasp for perhaps the very first time. But you strangle it with your silken tongue of lies and deceit.
1: As opposed to Chambers' tongue, which, as we know from Husk's diary, is a cosmic whisper.
0: And there are there are X-Men here, too, who are, are, see him and and collectively harangue him for, for having betrayed them.
1: I really like how Iceman has his usual jagged blue speech bubbles as he yells, TRAITOR! LIAR! MURDERER! And I also really love that Rogue here is in the pink and yellow Shi'ar mining costume that she was wearing the last time Gambit saw her when they were in space, when she abandoned him in Antarctica. That is a good little artistic touch.
0: And here we also get our first very clear indication that this isn't happening in reality, because Sinister appears behind Gambit and welcomes Gambit back to his employ.
1: Gambit throws cards, but the angry Clermontian narrator will have none of Gambit's foolish attack.
0: And... Even as their energy is explosively released, you desperately wish that you too could burn within these purifying flames, but all you can feel is the numbing cold of your own guilt.
1: Gabbett wakes up from this obvious dream to a glass of breakfast whiskey in his place in San Francisco. He's still being harangued by the narrator— but now also by visions of various X-Men, in this case, Rogue and Angel, the latter of whom is especially mad about Gambit's role in the Mutant Massacre and keeps attacking Gambit verbally about it. Understandably, as we just established, Warren was crucified during the Mutant Massacre that led to him losing his wings, becoming Archangel, leaving a big angel print of blood on the wall.
0: He's had a time, and, and Gambit definitely catalyzed the worst of it.
1: Yep. So, as for why Gambit's in San Francisco, he's looking for Mr. Sinister, the person who is in some ways responsible for Gambit's big crime, or at least who instigated it.
0: Oh, but that's not all he's doing.
1: Because also, in the words of the horse from over the garden wall, I want to steal. Gambit's profession is not lost on the narrator.
0: You're a thief, Gambit. A rat scurrying among the shadows, feeding off the innocent. And not so innocent. As a nod to your recent brush with morality, you only steal from other criminals. But a thief is still a thief.
1: Alas, somebody else got to the place Gambit was supposed to rob first, and Gambit sees the corpses of a bunch of drug dealers, the oddly soaking, fully drenched corpses indoors of said drug dealers.
0: Uh, As well as a hallucination of Rogue, who demands? Where are you going, Remy?
1: Don't tell me you're running away, like you usually do.
0: Uh, Gambit does, in fact, run away, but he runs to find his fixer, Oscar, um, in an establishment that, whose, whose signage indicates that its name is Barpool.
1: You know, in the fine tradition of EAT, which a couple of our commenters mentioned a couple episodes ago uh, actually is a real chain in the British Isles. Huh. Oscar is annoyed that Gambit abandoned this score that they were supposed to split. Also annoyed are the visions of the X-Men— Bishop yells at Gambit for working with low-life scum, Psylocke is furious at Gambit for hurting her boyfriend, and Beast is just judgmental as he and Psylocke play pool at the table nearby.
0: Too bad Gambit hasn't the guts to punish the one who shattered his lover's heart. Whoops, silly me. That was him, wasn't it? Man, that's very catty for someone who hasn't even ended up in a cat form yet.
1: Well done, well done. Well, Gambit takes a makeup job and ends up at a fancy mansion, only to find more watery corpses. And the narrator...
0: Suddenly, gunshots scream in the night. Just as you usually do in the morning.
1: But this time, one of the X-Men, one of the spectral visions of the X-Men, is encouraging. Specifically, a 90s animated series version of Cyclops.
0: Move it, mister! Lives may be at risk, and you have duty to save them! You're still an X-Man at heart!
1: And Gambit runs inside to try to save whoever's here, only to find Hydro-Man from the cold open, drowning the mob boss in his watery hands. Fucking Hydro-Man!
0: Okay, so Hydro-Man is, is an old Spider-Man villain dating back to 1980, and he's he's made of water, that's basically his thing.
1: Which should be awesome, like we were saying, but, I mean, I guess he's pretty dangerous here, it's just like he's... It's just that Gambit's able to go toe-to-toe with him instead of, like, all of the Avengers.
0: The only reason he's as threatening as he is here is because Gambit's, Gambit doesn't know his secret weakness is laundry detergent. Yup. And Hydro Man starts to drown Gambit um, the way he was drowning the mob boss, and a spectral rogue appears here and kind of changes her tune from earlier.
1: That's the spirit, sugar. Go! Don't you dare die on me, Remy! I hate what you've done. But if you quit now, I'll never forgive you. Let's talk a little about the way the different X Men are written here. Because obviously, this is not a twist. These X Men are visions Gambit is having. Like, he's been abandoned by the X Men after he essentially betrayed all of Mutant Kind. And so these are Gambit's version of how he thinks the different X Men think, but I feel like they each also have kind of a role. What do you think about the way the different X Men are handled? Like specifically, we've seen a fair bit of Beast, of Angel, of Rogue, of Cyclops.
0: We only—I think there are only two panels of Cyclops in the story. Um, Angel and Rogue are definitely the ones we see the most of, and I think that's appropriate given that they're the ones most invested in aspects of of what happened.
1: Right. Like, Angel really does appear to be the part of Gambit that just feels like he has sinned in a way that can never be forgiven, that that the damage he's done will never be undone, and that people should be angry at him. It's interesting that Rogue goes back and forth here. I feel like she kind of represents the hope within that self-hatred, the hope that maybe... He can turn things around. Maybe there's a way to be the better person that the X-Men have shown him that people can be. And that's actually why I think Cyclops is significant here. Because both times Cyclops shows up, he doesn't really care whether Gambit's scared or guilty or sad or whatever. His whole thing is, dude, your job is to be a hero, so be a hero.
0: Yeah, no, and that is always Cyclops' thing, is shit needs to get done put your feelings aside for now and do it, which is is healthy in the middle of fights and not as healthy when you run away to Alaska to avoid awkward conversations.
1: Exactly, exactly. But I like this. I mean, on a surface level, this is just how the X-Men would talk to him, but it gets so much more interesting when you remember, oh, these are the roles these different people play in Gambit's internal monologue.
0: Yeah. One of the more interesting bits, so we, we see it, I wish there were more of Storm in this issue. And... She, she only makes one brief appearance where she counsels uh, Gambit to dive into a swimming pool to um, dilute Hydro Man, but her appearance brings up my, one, one of my two complaints about the hallucinatory X-Men. Um, one of which is that there's not more Storm period, but the other of which is that I feel like they should not all be from the same era. I think they should basically be the versions of them that exist as the dominant versions in Gambit's mind. I would have loved, for instance, to see de Storm.
1: Right, little Roe, as Chris Claremont has been uh, heavily describing recently. Because, yeah, she was Gambit's link into the X-Men. The child Aurora was Gambit's partner as a thief and his kind of kid sister figure and later his older sister figure when she was re-aged.
0: I would also have liked to see more nuance from Bishop, given the complexity of his and Gambit's prior relationship.
1: Agreed. And, you know, that kind of makes me realize Gambit is actually one of the characters that I think has the greatest number of specific, unique interactions with different X-Men. Like, you have some characters that never talk, but almost everybody has an opinion about Gambit, and he has an opinion about them.
0: I mean, he's hard to avoid in the 90s. That's a really good
1: point. He's just ubiquitous and he's a pain in the ass.
0: He's ubiquitous and he's got that fucking accent.
1: (laughs) Yup. So, after Gambit manages to dilute Hydro Man like he's Dr. Bronner's soap, uh, all the surviving mobsters start shooting their guns at Hydro Man and Hydro Man flees. And so that's it for the job. This also has not gone well and Gambit just wanders the streets. At which point a vision of Jean Grey finds him. And I love her role here. Her role as she shifts visually from her 90s look to her Silver Age look to Dark Phoenix and then back to the 90s look is to remind him that, dude, people can change. You're never just the person you were at one time.
0: I mean, she committed her massive atrocity while not actually herself at all, so it's not a perfect analogy, but I get why she's the character in this role
1: well remember though that gene did get all the memories of the phoenix force that impersonated her jammed into her brain and they essentially became her own memories so that but that is doesn't still...
0: yeah but that doesn't make her culpable for the phoenix's crimes
1: no but it does make the guilt part of her identity okay fair Gambit goes to track down Oscar because he's pretty sure he knows what's up. This dude was clearly working with Hydro Man. He was having Hydro Man kill a bunch of people and then having Gambit steal all the stuff from the now unguarded places.
0: Oscar's explanation is that he's such a comic book character. I know I know, he is a comic book character, but he's such a comic book character. B- be cool, man. I'm just trying to get by best I can. I'm the kid even the wimps and geeks used to kick around but I've changed. I am the man now. Yeah, in 10 years, this guy is definitely going to be extremely into the phrase red pill without understanding that it's actually a metaphor for trans identity.
1: Yup. I kind of like this. I mean, Oscar's a big dork and he's utterly irredeemable, but this is a story about whether people can change, whether people can transform. And so the fact that he has such a facile uh, outlook on the concept kind of emphasizes that what gambit's at least trying to do is a hell of a lot more well thought out and admirable
0: and oscar says you know you could take me out but i can give you what you really want i can give you one of two other other characters locations that that you really want um Man or sinister which will it be
1: the narrator is surprised at gambit's choice
0: what would ever possess you to choose Hydro Man? It's a valid question. Sure, the man's a murderer, but the same could be said of his victims. He isn't even a mutant. It's not your problem, not your responsibility.
1: But away Gambit goes into what he knows is a setup. Hydro Man's goons have already been tipped off by Oscar the Jerk and are prepared. Angel mocks Gambit for beating up the gunmen almost as thoroughly as the Marauders slaughtered the Morlocks. But Cyclops doesn't have time for this personified self-recrimination.
0: You can't allow the Angel to distract you, Gambit. This is no time to start doubting yourself or your mission. You're here for a reason. Accomplish it!
1: And as Gambit charges forward, a bunch of ghostly X-Men charge forward with him. It is genuinely inspiring. He's finally gotten his shit together enough that all of these people he was using to psychologically beat himself up are now on his side.
0: That's really sweet. It is genuinely sweet, like straight up. You know what else is sweet? Stealing a motherfucking speedboat. That is never not cool, I say as a Mark Trail fan.
1: And Gambit does that, gets Hydro Man to chase him, and then charges up the speedboat and blows it and Hydro Man up as he swims away.
0: Now, before we go to the next step, it's worth pointing out that something we didn't mention is throughout this, Gambit has been complaining of being cold, and he doesn't know why, and he doesn't know why, but he's he's just, he's, he's always cold.
1: And the narrator addresses it more directly here than ever before.
0: An odd thought litters past your consciousness, is drowning even worse than freezing to death? For reasons you can't even begin to identify, freezing strikes you as infinitely more terrible.
1: But Drown Gambit does not. He swims to shore, walks through town, goes back to Bar Pool to find Oscar having been strung up by Sinister. And Gambit walks down the street with all the X-Men posing heroically behind him, and he knows they're part of him now. They'll never abandon him.
0: Except he's not walking down the street at all. He's staggering through the Antarctic wastes.
1: He's got ice in his eyebrows. He's half naked. The narrator almost sounds sympathetic.
0: It may be a lie, but you cling to it nonetheless. Some dreams die so much harder than others.
1: So yeah, this was all just a vision of redemption, and not even direct redemption. The X-Men didn't even forgive him. He was just having a fantasy of forgiving himself. And even that was a dream.
0: You know what I think is the saddest thing about this whole issue? What's that? That Gambit's whole redemptive fantasy hallucination, like, his subconscious could not pull up someone, anyone better than Hydro Man.
1: Oh, Remy, you poor bastard. But I really like this one. I like that we get such a thorough picture of Gambit's identity, and I like that the X-Men personify all the different parts of it. It works really surprisingly well.
0: It's really too bad that he freezes to death in the Antarctic after the storyline and just never appears in comics again.
1: On the last page, as he's buried in snow after he collapses, he is found by a dog sledder, so, you know, in the words of uh, post-credits stuff from Marvel movies, Gambit will return. But I like this, and I like that when Gambit does come back, if you've read the story, you're like, you know, all right, I'm, I'm on your side, dude, or at least mostly, at least, like, you know— He's not a total jerk. He did a horrible thing, yes, but he's trying so goddamn hard, and he definitely feels as guilty as he possibly could about the consequences of his actions.
0: Yeah, I think Gambit is a really interesting case in Redemption, and I think he's a really interesting contrast specifically to Sabretooth in his relationship to Redemption and his relationship to the X-Men.
1: Very true. Yeah, I kind of like how well these two issues of X-Men Unlimited pair together. Like, there are a lot of interesting thematic conversations that I don't think were intentional, but work.
0: Well, one of the things I think that makes Gambit effectively redeemable as a character is that he does feel guilt and he does change. Like, he actively seeks redemption— And whether that's something that's achievable is, is, you know, up to any individual to decide, and obviously it's different with fictional characters, but I think he's a pretty good study in oding your shit. You know who's also pretty good? Our listeners. They're not pretty good, they're excellent. Good point.
1: And one of the excellent things about them is that they give us questions to answer.
0: An anonymous listener asked on Tumblr, Magneto's real name was Magnus for much of the 80s and 90s, and then became Eric and then Max. What do you think are the incontinuity and creative and editorial reasons for this?
1: So, Magnus, huh? Yeah, that was a thing.
0: Yeah, so I think they originally changed it away from Magnus because it was a very goofy name for a Magnet-themed villain, and Magneto had been spun as a much more interesting, sympathetic, and generally well-rounded character for a pretty long time by then
1: guy named Otto Octavius ends up with eight arms? What are the odds? But yeah, so he became Eric Lenger. At the same time, we learned a fair bit more of his backstory. That was an X-Men Unlimited number two back in 1993, which we covered like ages ago. But at that point, it was kind of ambiguous whether Magneto was Roma or Jewish or both. All we knew was that he was definitely in the concentration camps. He had definitely been persecuted by the Nazis. In X Men Unlimited number two, Gabrielle Haller's research actually showed him to be Cinti Romani. But here's the thing Lenger is an old German word for feudal lord or liege lord. So, kind of a weird choice given his family history of being not upper class and thus even more of a target.
0: And that's going to be shown to be an assumed identity actually in X Men number 72 in 1998
1: so he was later confirmed as specifically jewish and given a real real name of max eisenhart in the magneto testament miniseries in 2008 that's the miniseries about young max in the camps there's there are no superpowers in it it is very well written and it is goddamn devastating highly recommended but like be prepared to cry
0: one of the things that's interesting about that is that the movies confirmed magneto is jewish i believe before the comics did in
1: fact significantly before and uh chris claremont specifically said that he fully approved of that he thought that was a great idea so as for eisenhart that translates to strength of iron and is a german jewish name so it's interesting to go from magneto being an ambiguous persecuted minority to specifically jewish i don't know what are your thoughts on that jay
0: honestly far 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 too extensive for an episode where we're already running over time um I think I'm much, much more qualified to comment on what's gained by making Magneto Jewish than what's lost by erasing or partially erasing his Romani background.
1: Fair, yeah.
0: I think as a Jewish character, he's really interesting and he makes a really, really interesting counterpoint to portrayals and representations of Jewish characters in, in mass media and he gives... yeah. We, we see characters with strained, fraught relationships with Christianity a lot, like I'm thinking Daredevil and so forth. We don't see that as frequently with Judaism, and I think it's really interesting to see and have, um, and to have that representation. But again, I, I can't speak as clearly to, to what's lost in that.
1: I feel like that's a longer conversation we, sh- we should have at some point, yeah. But that time is uh, not quite now. Instead, we have a second question Mark emailed us to ask. As Jay said on a recent episode, it's hard to keep up with all the current X titles, even for those of us who aren't new parent grad students. What is your ideal number of simultaneously published X titles?
0: Mm, I think four or maybe five. So we've got one core book, one teens and school book, um, one magic and weirdness book, and one to two other books. And the core book can be twice monthly if they really want. Um One of the other books can or cannot be an anthology series, but again, Max 5, and no more than one miniseries at once on top of those, unless it's something like Secret Wars that scraps the entire line and replaces it with miniseries temporarily.
1: Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. You definitely need the core book and the teen book. The other books can be whatever. I do kind of feel like X-Force or the equivalent counts as one of the core books at this point.
0: Then that's book number four. Okay, yeah. Uh... I also
1: feel like you should have a solo series or two. I think we'll probably always have a Wolverine series, and I would love a solo series for a female character as well that would be an ongoing.
0: So I'm good with that as long as it's not core to mainline continuity. I think it should mostly run on its own tracks, kind of like the OG Wolverine ongoing.
1: That's interesting you mentioned that, because right now the Wolverine ongoing is written by the same writer as the X-Force ongoing, and it's almost like they're two views of the same plot, which has been cool, but has also been very much its own particular thing.
0: I think that interlinking is—I mean, I get the point of it, but I think it's something to be done rarely.
1: No, that's fair. Uh, I would also love only one miniseries at a time, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. But it seems like we both agree that there are too goddamn many X-Men. And with that,
0: Jay and Miles, Explain the X Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon
1: Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com Men.com.
1: Check out ExplainTheX Men.com for visual companions to every episode.
0: Our show is 100% listener supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and 100% ad free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a minute to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps.
1: Next week, we return to the core of the X-Line
0: and the ill-fated but fascinating Siegel and Kelly era. She wore a red